Hello and welcome to another episode of Hopi Farm Talk podcast brought to you by the Not Money Coalition, a project of the Hopi Foundation. Here we look to host discussions on a wide range of topics concerning Hopi agriculture and the local food system of the Hopi and Tewa communities. You're here with JD and Berta. And today we are joined by Dr. Lydia Jennings, who is joining us over Zoom. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Thank you. Awesome. We're so glad you could join us. We're so excited. Um, But before we get into IFKIN and your partnership with them, Lydia, could you introduce yourself and give us a little background? Um, So I'll start by introducing myself and my language. Aloha Sinchinabo, Anapo Lydia. And my name is Lydia, and I'm a citizen of the Pascoyaki tribe down in southern Arizona. Uh, We're a binational tribe, so we're on both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border. And then on my mother's side, um, I'm Huichol, or the Wirikuta people, which is a tribe down in Mexico. And so I'm excited to kind of be here and to share space with Hopi because a lot of our traditions on my mom's side are also kind of around corn and around the woman's role in corn. And I saw a lot of similarities that with our time up in Hopi. Um, professionally, I'm also a soil scientist. I'm a researcher at the University of Arizona and in community environment and policy. And outside of that, I really love to run the Sonoran Desert with my little pup, Salchicha. Roberta was hoping that your pup would make a, a guest appearance today. Yeah. She's hi. right here behind me. So if you want her to say hi. Yeah. yeah. She's yeah. like sleep snoozing. Hold on. Let me get her. <laughs> we we saw okay. a video that, that um you were featured in about your run. Your run. <clears throat> oh, yeah. And so, My honor run. Yeah. yeah. And so we've been seeing like little um, clips here and there. And so we've, we've been seeing the pup. And so it's kind of like a celebrity moment. You know, do we get to, do we get does, to meet the celebrity? Does it have its own Instagram page? <laughs> she does. Oh, <laughs> oh. She does. It's a uh, chicha underscore adventures. Yeah, I'll give you guys the, the link. And I post, um, you know, captions as if I'm speaking for her. Uh-huh. And she's a very sassy blue healer <laughs> um, and very opinionated. And so that's awesome. kind of the vibe of that that account. Awesome. But it's just awesome. mostly like our adventures that we do. That is so awesome. Oh, there, there she is. is. Oh, there she is. Celebrity mm. sighting here at the um, yeah. Farm Talk podcast. Hi, cutie. She just has to be bribed. Hi, cutie. <laughs> right Anyways, this is my little girl. <clears throat> Lydia, could you uh, tell us uh, about your journey of an indigenous woman obtaining her PhD? And uh, what were your inspirations? And um, were there anybody, uh, any people in particular that motivated you to, you know, take the take the road less traveled? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think often when people, ask, when I think about my PhD journey um, and just like the journey in, in higher education, I kind of like to think, you know, I'm an environmental scientist. So I think our best teachers are nature and nature spaces. And uh, one thing I've learned by observing and, and kind of studying rivers is that it's a meand- the meandering rivers tend to be the most healthy ecosystems. Um And I think that's really true with like my own educational journey that I took a lot of meanders and turns that felt like failures, but actually it was those experiences I learned the most from. So just for context, you know, I I went to the Native American preparatory school in Rowe, New Mexico Um, that got closed down. And I went and lived um, with a family abroad in Spain for a year, which was like crazy. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But, you know, when I and then I went to community college in California and live with my godmother there. And it was I was like, what am I going to do? What do, what do I want to do? And so I took all these general ed classes and I thought I wanted to be in political sciences. And I actually learned that I found a lot of people in political sciences kind of like to hear themselves talk. 
Um, <laughs> and it was like the classes that I took in science where it was all these other people being really nerdy and going on camping trips and like identifying plants. And I was like, oh, these are my people, you know? <laughs> um, and then kind of through that, that process, um, I had a professor who just saw that I had this affinity with like environmental and natural sciences and kind of invited me to do some research experiences. And so that really got me into like the research process um, and learning a lot about kind of soil and water quality. And so I eventually, you know, transferred to a four-year um, college and I did some research um, a lot with like uh, mercury and mining um, and just kind of what they call submarine groundwater discharge. So all this, you know, underneath the ground, we also have rivers. Um, we just can't always see them. Right. Mm -hmm. And that rivers can pass all these contaminants from, from old mining sites. Uh, and I thought that was really interesting. And so I just kind of became really interested in like heavy metals and how those influence our water systems. And after I graduated, yes, heavy metals. <laughs> um, yeah. after me. I graduated, like I knew I wanted to go to grad school, but I was just so burnt out. Uh, cause I was working three jobs, you know, supporting myself through college, wait, like waitressing, bartending, and then like doing research. And it was just like tired. I almost felt like resentful towards my education. Mm -hmm. And so I actually took a summer off. I just like worked as a waitress and that was cool for a little bit, but then I was like, what am I doing? <laughs> and then I got a job as an environmental toxicologist for the university of California, Davis. And so I got to go up there and I, you know, I worked there for two and a half years. I got to sample all the major rivers in California, which is really cool because you see everything from like, you know, the Tijuana River, which is one of the most contaminated rivers in the country. And we had to like wear hazmat suits when we collected samples there wow. all the way up to yeah. like the Urock River, where it's just like these salmon are like jumping out of the water at like sunrise. And it was just so beautiful. And so everything in between. And I think that those experiences really made me think a lot about like how we, how we as humans interact with natural spaces, particularly with water, you know, Southern California, I saw they, they name their rivers after the streets that pass over them. But then like up in Northern California, they name their rivers, um, the streets after the rivers that flow beneath them. And just how that also is reflective of how we interact with our natural spaces. Right. And as I was doing all that work, you know, we did a lot of work in agricultural fields as well. And I was like, out of all the places that I go, like, these are the people who look like me and recognizing my family's own history with, with farming and, you know, stories about how farming made a lot of people in our family sick. And so, and like, I'm looking at the data, looking at toxicity from the pesticides that are being sprayed. Mm -hmm. I was just like, you know, I need to learn, use my science in a way that's helping my own community. And so then I took, you know, another year to really figure out what does that mean? Mm -hmm. And throughout the Southwest, it's mining. Mining is just a really big issue for us. And so I knew that I wanted to kind of come back to the Southwest and be closer to my own people. Because um, I was interested in like indigenous issues, but it's different when you're in someone else's homeland advocating for that versus being in your own homeland and right. working with your own people. Right. And so I applied to a couple of different graduate programs, but I was very thankful to be you know, admitted and selected at the University of Arizona, which is in Dona Atham and Pasco Yaqui land. So I got to work um, very close to my own community on mining issues that are adjacent to my tribe. And I'm going to not lie, like the PhD process is hard. I was really thankful for other indigenous students there, uh, including, you know, Hopi's own uh, PhD researcher or uh, now scientist, um, Carrie Joseph, Dr. Carrie Joseph. Mm -hmm. Um, just having that kind of support of other indigenous peoples, but women specifically as we navigate this and think about the role of the science that we do, that's not only 
because we're interest, intellectually interested, but also in a way that serves our, our nations. Yeah, um, interesting you mentioned uh, Carrie. Um, I believe Carrie, uh, Dr. Carrie Joseph is the director of the Natural Resources Department out here in Hopi. Um, she was yeah. supposed to give us a presentation at uh, a meeting that we had on Tuesday, but um, unfortunately she was unable to attend that meeting, but um, is very engaged and um, active in the community out here, uh, here on Hopi. Yeah, and she was a couple years ahead of me, but, you know, we are in a lot of the similar um, programs and things. We are both Sloan Foundation fellows, and so I think it's just going from an academic, like my undergraduate space where I didn't have any other Native people, and then seeing all these amazing Indigenous people and how they're doing this work to serve their community. And, you know, I think it's really inspiring for Carrie to come back and actually work Mm -hmm. in the department with her tribe. Like, that is, you know, my tribe doesn't have an environmental department. So I I find that really inspiring um, for so many. And I think that's a great part about being at a place like University of Arizona is you have um, all these other Indigenous people and learning and building those relationships across um, tribal nations in the Southwest. That's awesome. So um, that'll kind of bring bring me to the next question that we have for you. Um, what brought you to the Indigenous Foods Knowledges Network? And what is your role within the network? Yeah, I mean, so it's going to be multi-piece because it, that that role has changed. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, broadly, I mentioned I study mining and mining reclamation, but my training is really as a soil scientist. Um, and a big part of my work has been and in, in thinking about, you know, as we work to heal these lands, what does that mean for the future of our food sustainability? Mm-hmm. Because we know that when a place is mined, it changes like as a scientist, we can say it changes the physical soil, um, air quality characteristics, but also like as an indigenous person, we know it also kind of changes the spiritual component of that. And my work is in reclamation. So I can understand those chemical, physical, biological pieces and how do we heal that land. But that piece of like, how do we heal that land spiritually is so cultural dependent. And some tribes don't think that you can heal it spiritually. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, if we're using that land to mine, that takes away a place that we could potentially grow food from. And so that was something that I was kind of trying to grapple with. Um, because again, in the South in the Sonoran desert, you know, we are like many places considered a food desert, or as my colleague, Mary Beth says, a food apartheid, um, in part, you know, it's an apartheid because it wasn't our choice to make, you know, to have these mines there, but it was kind of presented as the only opportunity of economic growth. Right. And so that was really why I was interested in like mining, um, and that connection to food, um, but also I think, you know, you know, an important part of growing food is having healthy soil. Um, and so that was kind of how I became involved with Indigenous Food Knowledges Network. I've been involved for, since the first year um, as a graduate student. Um, and that you guys have already talked about what the Indigenous Food Knowledges Network is, or do you want me to review that? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you can share with our okay. listeners what the Indigenous okay. Foods Knowledges Network is. Yeah, so the Indigenous Food Knowledges Network is a network between the Arctic and the Southwest of the United States, kind of recognizing that both of these places are considered those food deserts or food apartheids. And so it was really kind of how can we bring together people from these two very extreme environments that are very different and learn together on the land that's in in ways that are really indigenous led. Mm -hmm. And so being from a tribe from the Southwest, but recognizing, you know, how we approach food sovereignty and security in the Sonoran Desert down in Tucson versus how Hopi approaches that are very different. And we're just in the same state. Mm-hmm. So then you take in totally different ecosystem considerations, you know, that are happening up in the Arctic. An example that I learned up there is just like 
how the pesticides that we spray down here in the Southwest that we think are good so that we, or some people think are good so that we can have a higher produce yield, all of those get concentrated up in by the air streams, you know, things that we can't even see visually. And they actually get co concentrated up in the Arctic regions. And then when it rains, that goes into the river flows, the animals eat that, and it ends up having really high bioaccumulation of pesticides that are sprayed hundreds and hundreds of miles away. Wow. And so we are having these kind of systemic impacts onto our other indigenous peoples. Um, and it's how do we think about what those issues are and how do we collectively work to address them? And so this is like part of the reason why I've been so passionate about being involved with this network is the relationships that you build with one another, the recognition of just because you want change one piece here, it still has this ripple impact. You right. know, we're all part of mm -hmm. these bigger systems and, and interdependence upon one another. So how can we kind of collectively learn from each other and address them? And what are the similar challenges that we're having with federal funding or, uh, you know, different corporations, you know, whatever that might be, and how can we learn together from that? And so that's something I love about the Indigenous Food Knowledges Network. I started out as a graduate researcher. I'm now on the steering committee. Um, and I think a hope is kind of eventually transitioned to being one of the principal investigators with the food, the food network um, and kind of con continuing to build these relationships out. That's awesome. The interconnective areas that you're talking about, you know, that although we are geographically spread apart, you know, even, you know, our, our nations here in Arizona, you're in towards the southern southern end and, you know, we're, we're a little more towards the north. But, you know, when we lay those nets down of, you know, these issues that you're talking about, you know, we're able to see, although we, we're in, in our relatives up in Alaska and in the Arctic as well, you know, we, we see where those those similarities are in addressing a lot of the stuff that we're talking about here. And I just want to mention that um, I was fortunate enough to be uh, the driver of the van that um, you and um, Mr. Max Taylor were in. And it was just really, really, really interesting to, to listen in on some of the discussions you two were having um, about soil and about um, the, the formations and, and the concerns you have about the soil health uh, here on Hopi in different areas. And so while we're talking about Hopi, Describe your Hopi experience during the Ifkin gathering and um, maybe highlight some of the standout memories you have from your, your visit here on Hopi. Yeah, I mean, I think there are so many, um, you know, prior to coming up for this this Food Knowledges Conference, I had been up to Hopi only for, um, well, I've been there once for a butterfly dance that happened like right after the Lewis Tawanama foot race. Mm -hmm. So I had to come up for that race as well. And so I'd always had so much uh, respect for Hopi um, an appreciation for the beauty here, um, in part just because how how challenging run up that running up that base is. <laughs> um, but I think it was really beautiful to see also how expansive it is. Um, and so you know, the first day going was it Tawa Park? Uh, the Tawa first Park. day we went to Tawa Park. But Tawa Park, thank you. So going there and just seeing like this amphitheater of of rock art and pottery and you know thinking about the messages that were sent were shared there uh, was really beautiful um i also uh loved the the terrace gardens that we experienced um in hotvela yeah hotvela yeah, hotvela thank you um and then also uh seeing the village of wallop wallopi walpi 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 um you know that was a place where you know, there, there's, there's certain places that you go to in like indigenous communities, you can feel like the prayers of a place mm -hmm. that almost like resonates out of the ground. And I really felt that coming into that village. And I, I grew up in the Southwest around a lot of like, um, Tewa Pueblos. And, and so seeing also those similarities between there 
what I grew up with. And then, and then those villages, I think was just really, really amazing. Um, and then also the food, <laughs> so much, so much good food. Um, and I think also, you know, one of the things I love about the IFKIN network and, and is those experiences on land. And so as we're walking the, through the cornfields and, um, you know, I, I saw a lot of, um, corn that has a fungus and, and in Mexican, mm-hmm. my mom's tribes, um, that's called Wilacoche and it's like a delicacy and people are like, take it. And I'm like, yeah. oh my gosh. And we made it, took it home and made some tacos with it. Oh, and yeah. for us, that's a big delicacy. Um, but for other people, like not as much, but it was interesting to talk with some of the other participants and like their beliefs around, you know, this corn fungus and what that means. Um, and I think it's just that kind of knowledge exchange that's on the land together through stories, not through a PowerPoint in a conference room. Right. That's so powerful. I agree, and I'm I'm glad that um on one of the days, the day that we had the the lunch at um Roberta's family's uh, house in in Walpi, that Valerie informed us that there was a, a bread oven being made in the village of Tewa, and so I was um glad that you were able to. You said you grew up in in Tewa country in New Mexico side, and so you know the it was kind of cool to to bring you out and uh, let you visit the village of Tewa that um that is here in Arizona. That's the Hopi side. Yeah, on the Hopi side of the, or on the Arizona Arizona the side, side yeah. Of, yeah, of the line. So that was a, a neat thing that was um you know just just happened to be going on during the gathering and that we were able to take you over and um have a Hopi Titsqua Permaculture Institute um talk about what the the project that they were doing there and they were making bread ovens. Yeah, I think that was one of the one of the aspects I really appreciate about this trip is you know, I'm, I'm an academic. And so often we think of like, it has to come from these like institutions, these solutions and being an indigenous tribal citizen. We know that that's not the case that actually a lot of the best solution is happening on the ground in our communities. And I, I think I've seen what we, you know, what we're doing down South, but it was really cool to see the types of approaches that you all are taking up in Hopi, whether it's through housing, through thinking about water and food security, you know, integrate, um, introducing new economies like ranching. I think all learning about all of those pieces is really powerful. Um, and just, it's beautiful to see it in practice and that I think it's always important. People know that like you can get degrees in these things, but also you can do so much with just community knowledge and, and yeah. kind of learning from and learning from people around you. And I think it was just really beautiful to see that as well. Yeah. And I think um, during the trip, you know, we were able to highlight kind of the, the contrasts of all of that from, um, you know, you were, you mentioned the, the terrace gardens at Hot Vela, which is, um, you know, really done uh, in a, in a cultural, uh, in a cultural sense, you know, in a cultural setting, there's, there's, um, there's a structure to it. Yeah, definitely structure. There's a time. There's you know, a place. There's and 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 it's 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 based in in culture. And then you know you got to visit um, our hoop houses, which is you know modern, which is you know completely uh, a total paradigm shift from you know the the traditional gardens that you you got to visit. And so you know there there is that balance that's happening and and new new innovation that's coming in to deal with the erratic growing seasons that we're we're starting to experience out here on Hopi. And so. I'm I'm glad that you know we were able to kind of highlight like, like I said highlight the the extremes that that are happening here on Hopi and then that you know we're not locked into just one certain you know mindset on how we're going to approach our agriculture and and our soil and 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 the land as a whole. And so um speaking of the land, are you familiar with the former coal mining operations north of Hopi and the environmental impacts um they've had on our local communities? as well as the the health and economic impacts as some of the families in the areas have now had to, or some of the families in our area 
have now had to find alternate and probably safer options than coal or winter heating. I am familiar with them more of just like reading reports about them or seeing presentations. That's probably about the extent. And I am pretty familiar with just this, this big conversations that that's been happening about, well, what happens when that coal plant closes? What does that mean for our economy and our community? And how do we transition to having job security for those community members where they can still kind of be here and in place at home? Because I think being up in Hopi, you really see that being in community to be able to around for those important planting um, or community events is really essential to part of Hopi life. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what does that mean for that, you know, shifting economy? But I would say that what I've learned about that has not co- so much come from Hopi people unless they're like academic. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I would still say that my, my knowledge about it is pretty limited. Being a, a soil scientist and, and with, with your background, what concerns, you know, would, would you have if you were a, a Hopi tribal member or, you know, a Tewa tribal member here on the Hopi reservation about, like you said previously, that when mining takes place, there's impacts to the land that are forever and that those areas, you know, you can't farm or, you know, um, it contributes to, you know, what you were talking about earlier of, of Hopi being a food desert. What are some concerns that as a, as, as a soil scientist that you would have if, if you were a Hopi tribal member? Yeah, I mean, I think a big piece is what, how are, how they cleaned up as they come to closure mm-hmm. um, and contain those wastes because it's very easy for some of that coal to get into water quality and, and impact it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, growing up here in New Mexico, there's a little town called Madrid, New Mexico. And there, you know, it was an old coal mining town. It was a company town that they never really dealt with. And so even today, 30 years later, like they have to truck in all the water for people who live there. The hills, when it rains, it's still like, rains black, um, all that water. And so even though it might've at that time been contained in an area because that was not really sequestered into one area, it's kind of gone through the entire town. And I would hate to see that with Hopi with, because, you know, that has so much impact on a plant's ability to uptake water, for example, or how does it impact our water quality and what are the chemical properties that might be affecting our health outcomes long-term? What are the different types of chemical compounds that I can create these secondary and tertiary chemical compounds that it can create? And so I think those are the types of things you really want to be careful about. Now there are different ways. And I'm sure Carrie Joseph, Dr. Carrie Joseph is working on that, but there are different ways that you can kind of make sure that gets stabilized and gets recharged back into the ground. Mm-hmm. You know, coal is naturally occurring. I think we even saw that at uh, one of the parks that we went to right. where you can just see kind of the coal seams. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I mean, it is a naturally occurring, but it's really like what a big part when you think about toxicity is, well, what is the, the rate and the concentration and also the amount of doses that you get? And so I think those would be the, the types of concerns I would be thinking about. Yeah, I know one of the, the main concerns that people in the First Mesa area where Roberta and I are from uh, is arsenic. And we hear a lot of reports and we have a lot of different organizations and, you know, IHS that provide education surrounding um, the arsenic issue here on Hopi. And so one of the things that we learn from the bi- uh, burning byproduct of coal is, is arsenic is one of those uh, heavy metals that that is, I guess, attributed to coal. And so that was one of the concerns that I know a lot of people in the First Mesa area had, as as we became more educated about what the coal mining operation was doing, not only to our environment, but, you know, to us as, as uh, tribal members, to our health. 
we would get reports that boiling the water doesn't help. help it. You know, it mm. actually makes it worse when we're talking um, arsenic because it just concentrates. You had mentioned, you know, at the beginning of the program, the, the leaching of heavy metals into the water systems and everything. And so here on Hopi, stewardship is a fundamental um, part. And so, you know, with, with mining, you said that we saw a natural seam of coal at one of the sites. And so, you know, coal is natural. But that extraction of it and the chemicals that are used to to separate coal from, you know, that's when it's a man-made problem. And so how do we, you know, how do we as a, a community, as, as individual communities, because like, you know, like I said, the, the arsenic isn't being, it's not affecting the, the entire reservation in the same way, you know, on Hopi. In First Mesa, we have a high concentration. So what are some things that we can do to, to our land to kind of start reversing some of those effects that the mining operations have had? With coal mining too, right? Mm-hmm. It's usually lead and arsenic that are right. going to be those big heavy metals that have health concerns. And so I, this is not particularly my area of expertise, but I, I think a big part is thinking about what are the plants that you can grow there to mm-hmm. kind of uptake those metals right. that aren't going to bioaccumulate. And so that's where kind of working with tribal ethnobotanists might be a really powerful thing to think about what are plants that are can survive well in those areas, mm-hmm. but that don't bioaccumulate them, but will uptake them out of the ground. So that would be one. And then the other one that we often hear, like any anyone who's taking chemistry classes often hear is like the solution to pollution is dilution. And so thinking about how do we dilute that? Mm-hmm. But also how do we do that in a place like Hopi where you don't have a lot of water? Right. Um, and so how those are like always those types of challenges that you have to to weigh in these types of questions. And I know it's a but really, yeah. and I, I didn't mean to Go put ahead. you on the spot. And I know it's a really complex question because, you know, we're, we're talking coal or, you know, we're just talking one fossil fuel right now. Everybody's driving their cars around and then You know, with the coal, we're talking about mining, but then there's, you know, also the burning of it. These conversations that we have, you know, here on the on the podcast, you brought up the utilization of plants. And so that's something that I hadn't even thought about. And a lot of the conversations that have been occurring out here on Hopi are more chemical um, solutions. Big companies and cleanups. And so I'm glad that this conversation happened today because it'll allow us to reach out to Max as a resource. Max Taylor, he's he's an incredible uh, ethnobotanist, if you will, out here on Hopi. He's really knowledgeable about the plant life and uh, Hopi Nevini, which is wild Hopi edible plants. And so he would be one that, you know, we would maybe bring into that conversation to have. So um, I'm glad that this interview is happening today because, you know, it provides that, that space, like you said, to to foster these ideas. One other one I would say that's really common, um, you know, I work with active mining companies. And so copper is a big one that we right. have down in the Sonoran Desert. Mm-hmm. And so a really common strategy that they do, and I, I think, you know, again, this is, relates a lot to like Carrie Joseph's work, mm-hmm. is they do what they call um, soil caps. So taking soil from an offsite desert area and putting it on top of the mining waste to stabilize it. So that might be another option as well, which I think depending on the type of waste and how how toxic it might be. Sometimes they have like liners that they put on top of those areas of really high concentration. So they have liners and like cap it with soil. So those are also um, something that might not be as water intensive. But I, I ultimately think like when it comes to repairing the land from these colonial and industrial pollutions, Mm -hmm. there are a lot of ways that our nature, our ecosystems know how to heal themselves, but it's not on the time scales that we want. Right. Right. Like microbes are going to be there in the soil doing their thing and breaking down these compounds. But 
that might take like a thousand years, right. right? And we want to have be able to use those la landscapes in the next five to ten years. And so I think it's always an important question when we think about how do we heal these places is what the time scale we want and also what's the future use we want of these places. Mm -hmm. And we should honestly be having those conversations with companies before they even begin digging or extracting. Right. Um, but if we can't have those conversations in the beginning because of previous historical colonial policies, mm -hmm. then we have to be having that today before those places come to closure. Um, and that, can, you know, you're actually seeing in other parts of the world that this transition economy from being extractive to actually healing the land and reclamation is actually becoming a really valuable economy. It's like, what could it look like if Hopi is instead of create, having all these coal miners is creating a fleet of people who are uh, um, restoration ecologist specialists, right? Right, right? And you can actually have this fleet of Hopi scientists going all over the country to help other communities have these types of transition. I think that would be really beautiful. Oh, yeah, yeah. That, that would be, I know not entirely on, on topic, but um, it was a conversation that you and Janine were, were having in the van. And one of the topics was what sector most of the new jobs are in. And that sector is in tech. And, you know, unless our, our native communities and our native tribes are kind of opening that avenue to our youth in high school and, and providing that um, opportunities to come in to, to introduce our youth to that tech sector, we're probably going to have one of the highest unemployment rates in, in the country because we're not putting our focus into pushing our youth into those sectors that are going to be beneficial to our, our communities going forward in response to to the shift away from these extractive industries and, and these fossil fuels as, as a means of um, energy. That was another side conversation that was happening during this IFKIN meeting that um, has me thinking and has me... Um, kind of enjoying the, the opportunity that Roberta and I have been given with the 4-H program to do this podcast with the youth. So it will give the youth another um, a medium to reach out and to provide kind of what this podcast is, is intended to. Earlier you had said providing a window, you know, a guided window into the, into the Native communities that research is, is trying to get into. And so that's kind of what this podcast is, a window for individuals to get a guided view into agriculture on Hopi and, and all that it entails, which is, you know, soil health and then the cultural um, practices and, and understandings that we have within all the different areas of Hopi agriculture. Kind of moving over. And I think that's a really great point, that that tech piece. Sorry, I know you want to move on, but I, I just want to add something within that, right? I think that tech piece is really important because whether we like it or not, we are all constantly generating data right. in digital spaces, whether it's through our cell phones and how long we're on that, whether it's our gas mileage. I mean, our, our cars are basically small computers now, mm -hmm. yeah. our watches. <laughs> so we're constantly gathering data. But often the people who are in charge of, of informing and, and how that data is applied are not indigenous people. Mm -hmm. So that means that we are already at that disadvantage. And talking about it in terms of the food economy, well, we're seeing increasingly mm -hmm. that um, the tractors to drive are more technically involved now. A lot of uh, major farming firms are investing heavily in what they call data science and big, at, big data which is like being able to take all these data points from millions of farms and then ask questions into the algorithm and get their answer to how to have better informed ideas of what consumers want or what are common diseases that these places are having. So all of that is happening. It's all becoming more technically innovative. And 
it's going to be hard, I think, for a lot of our communities if we are, you know, working so hard to reclaim those uh, traditional farming practices or different traditional water practices, which are still important. Mm-hmm. But we also are, have to recognize that we're going to be on this much bigger, technically innovative and restrictive industry level as well. And so I think it's important to be informed in that. And then also to think about just as talking about Hopi is using traditional farming and hoop houses, right? Mm-hmm. Then together, you can kind of make that pathway for the new ancestors. And I think that's kind of something we're thinking about too, is within the science realm of how do we take these traditional and ecological knowledges with this big data science? And is there a way that we can braid them together? Or is there a way that we can understand that big data to be more protective of our traditional knowledges so they don't get extracted? And I think those are really important pieces that so many of us currently and our future generations are going to have to grapple with. That probably could be an entirely separate um, podcast um, with you and Jeanine <laughs> in and of itself. You know, yeah, because definitely. There, there's a lot of uh, amazing stuff that the two of you are talking about that um, is relevant. You know, it, it's valid it, and it, it's pressing. You know, these issues that um, you and Janine were talking about, they, they are pressing issues because technology is only getting more advanced by the minute, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, my cell phone used to fold open and now it's got like 12 cameras on the back. So, you know, and that's in a matter of 10, 15 years. And I had a StarTech that opened up and just had analog uh, uh, display and then a snake game. And, you know, now I got, you know, Angry Birds and I can watch Netflix and everything on my phone. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's happening at a rapid pace and a lot more rapid than I think, you know, we want to admit to because when we admit to that, then we, we, we realize that our time here is short. And so we have to make that time um, meaningful and impactful. Moving on from the science, we wanted to go ahead and, and um, let you talk about your passion. Your passion. So Roberta's got, Roberta's <laughs> My got passion some... outside of science. Yeah. Um, passion yeah. outside of science. <laughs> uh, we'll probably be running. I've been doing that for, I don't know, most, half, I guess, oh my gosh, half my life now. Yeah. I mean, it started when I started high school, essentially, and I was, I used to do a lot of dancing and my brother was like you need to start running and I was like that's dumb you just run around in circles you know (laughs) um and he was like no everyone in our family does it and we're pretty decent and you needed to do it you need to keep the tradition alive and like I said I went to an all-indigenous boarding school and Mm -hmm. so actually running was one of the few ways to get off campus and so I started you know going on these field trips to go running and I just loved it and I continue to love it today it took me to college my first year of college I was a running and then I got injured but it's kind of always been this best friend I come back to. I think it's been, it's great to be in the Southwest because all the different tribal nations host community runs and you get to know them, you get to make relations, you get to eat good foods. <laughs> you know, I never feel guilty about eating a big meal after a good run. And it also kind of has co-informed my space as a soil scientist because I'm constantly running over different soils. And if I'm going up a mountain and I'm really struggling, I can always look down at the soil and just like think about what soil I'm interacting with. And it kind of gives me this extra push to keep moving. So yeah, running is just a, a really big part of who I am. And I think as I've gotten older, I, I, you know, when you're, when you're younger and like in high school, middle school, high school, you kind of run just to go as fast as you can. And like, you know, I remember our coach saying like, it's not a good run unless you like feel like vomiting at the end. That's not a good workout. <laughs> and like, I was so into that when I was, when I was younger, right. It was like, yeah, like, oh, like hurled at the finish line. Like that was a good race. Uh, I'm definitely not that way now. You know, I think now it's, um, more, less about like the physical pain I'm causing myself and more about the ecosystems that I get to interact with when I'm out there and, 
kind of tightening this ability to make observations and to experience beautiful places, to go out with friends or my pup, uh, just see the joy that it brings her and the joy that it brings me and, and provide perspective in my life. And so it's running has just kind of continuously been this like way of expressing my relationship with myself. Um, and one of the healthiest relationships I think I have with myself, you know, and I also just get to keep on observing and, and seeing different soil friends along the way. Again, um, I was fortunate enough to be the driver of one of the vans that you and Janine and Mary Beth and Nor were in. And I had overheard another discussion that you were having about how running helped you navigate academia and the challenges that uh, an indigenous person faces going through a place that for a long time, you know, we were told we don't belong or that, you know, we didn't have the capacity to even be in. And so running was one of those traditional tools, I guess, a, a connection to culture that helped you navigate uh, your journey through academia. Do you want to share with our listeners or elaborate on that? Yeah. So I, I think I mentioned a little bit earlier that um, running has been really important for me and just like building up my observation skills. And I went to college initially on that running scholarship. And so it's kind of been part of this pathway of me coming to where I'm at today, but it was really in graduate school that I realized it's not just that, that competitive piece, it's also that mental and spiritual health piece. And so part of it was when I was in Tucson, like just finding community through running and, and meeting different people and meeting different trails, getting to know places and Actually, I eventually realized that like a lot of the running trail spaces didn't really have native people. So we started hosting some community runs. We called them the Sco Run Den series. <laughs> and it was kind of trail runs for native people because even a lot of community members who did grow up in, in the Tucson area, they were like, would see me post about my trail runs, be like, where did you go? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that was like an important part is just to kind of make those trail spaces more accessible to my own community members. But also just recognizing that like having friendships through running in these really healthy, healthy ways of uh, bonding with other people. Because I think like it's really common in college, people just like bond through drinking. But if you're in a really rigorous like PhD program or just, you know, in school, it's, it can be hard to to keep your mind straight if that's the only way that you make friends and bond. And so actually running is a really healthy way of bonding with people and sharing adventures. And so that was kind of something that started to get me like get up early, go for a run and then have a more productive day. And I feel good. I've already gotten my exercise for the day. And so I guess in general, I'm trying to say that anyone who's kind of navigating the academic pathway, it's really important that you have some kind of outlet. It can be beating or weightlifting. And for me, it was running. And usually the days that I felt like I didn't have time to run were the days that I needed it the most. Right. And so it was also just that process of building discipline for myself that like you need to do it every day, even if you don't feel like it, because you're going to be a lot much better when you do do it. And so, yeah, making that time. And then like after you run, you eat better because like you have those hot Cheetos, you can like fill them in your side <laughs> burning, you know, so just like that, those types of pieces of things as well. It, it's not just the physical act. It's kind of this whole cascade that it has for you. And so it kind of culminated for me. I'm a graduate of the class of 2020. And so I can't express like how hard it was to have gone through six years of a PhD program and every year going to the Native American student convocation ceremony and being like, okay, someday it's going to be me up there. Like I'm going to have my time. And then, you know, 2020 was the pandemic. 
And so my graduation got canceled. Um, and that was really just heartbreaking um, because I was looking forward to that time of like, finally, Ayaki is going to be up there on the stage getting her PhD. Um, finally, my parents can like see that, can share this moment with everyone. All the friends that I've worked so hard with, you know, we get to celebrate. I think that year is going to be like 12 Indigenous women PhDs. So like, wow, what a sight to behold, right? right. Yeah, yeah um, definitely. And that got canceled. And then it got canceled. Um, and I found myself just kind of in this like space of feeling really stuck. And like, I knew it was the right decision to make because it was a pandemic, but I also like felt angry because I've worked so hard for this. And so I had to kind of just like pivot that emotion into something different. And so I kind of made the decision that I would, I'm not going to have a convocation. I want to like use that to celebrate this moment. I'm going to celebrate this moment through my favorite pastime that has gotten me through my PhD, which was running. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up to celebrate my PhD to 50 mile run along the Santa Rita mountains, which is like a, the mountain range that was part of my dissertation that I got to know through reading environmental impact statements and articles and court cases. I got to like actually experience that physically as well through running. And I think that's probably one of the most intimate ways you can know a landscape, right? And, you know, calling that mountain that I had studied in our traditional name and learning those like traditional histories and looking for certain plants that I'd read about of why this place is to be protected. And I also wanted to, I recognize like as I was writing my dissertation that as much as I struggled in my PhD to get through, how did the people who came before me, who were like the first in their field, right. um, who were the first at the institution, the only indigenous person at the institution, what was that like for them? Cause like, I still feel like I had a hard time but like, if you're the first person and like your traditional ecological knowledge is seen as mythology, what was that like for them? And so I wanted to make sure that as I was celebrating my accomplishment, I was also celebrating theirs because uh, I wouldn't be here without that. And then also create pathways for those who come after us. Um, and so in Yaki, you know, um, three is our sacred number. And so it's kind of thinking about the past, the present and the future. Uh, and that was really important to me. And so I ended up doing a 50 mile run. It was filmed. Um, and so if you guys want to see it, it's on YouTube called Run to Be Visible. And that was kind of my PhD celebration. I did 50 miles honor to 50 different indigenous scientists. And actually Carrie Joseph was one of them, one of the scientists I honored. And I raised money for the American Indian Science and Engineering Society. And so that was just kind of one of those ways of of bringing, you know, my, all my identities together, running the science, the yakiness. <laughs> and for our listeners, she said, she did say 50, not 15, <laughs> five zero. She, five she zero. ran 50 miles as, as an honor run, like she said, and each mile was dedicated, dedicated to an inspirational individual in um, Lydia's life. And so as a runner, as somebody, you know, who's, who's laced them up and, and, gone out on a, either a trail or a road uh, 50 miles is a is a big commitment and for those of us that have run you know distances like that the miles can you know they they, they start to just become you know an afterthought at some point you don't even realize you know okay i'm at mile two mile three mile four but to to individually honor an individual you know that 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 was a very intimate 50 miles that you did and so um I'm just trying to wrap my head around it. To be in that space for 50 consecutive miles, honoring individuals, that, that took a lot. You know, as a runner, I, I know the, the amount of um, energy and, and um, 
you know, the soul that it takes to, to do something like that because you don't want to fail. You don't want to let any of the people down. So to start it and to finish it, that's huge. And it's, it's inspiring. It is and very, very inspiring. And like you said, I'm Dr. Kerry Joseph's in there. And one of the reasons or one of the goals that we had to bring you on to this podcast was to provide a positive role model to our youth and maybe the youth at the Hopi High School here that, that are wanting to become a scientist. And, but are thinking, you know, that's that only men make the big bucks in that. And so, you know, you're, you're showing how to navigate that world and that it can be done. And during the conversation, I don't know, you didn't touch on it, but part of the conversation that I overheard was always being told that we don't belong in certain spaces and you're proof that we do and that we've always been in academic spaces, just not formally or, you know, not in a university setting. And so, you yeah, know, and that is something I've heard so much throughout my life. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. And so you are a positive role model. You've reached the the. Probably in, in your eyes, not the pinnacle yet. There's ambitious people. There's always something else to, to, to go after. But it, it sparked a lot inside, you know, me, my own mind. I'm like, this, this, this is awesome. I was like, she's, she's an awesome role model. I was like, for one, I was like, I can show, show the kids this. And I'm like, look at her. She's playing in the dirt. <laughs> That's her job. That's her job right there. Playing in the dirt and sifting through all that stuff well, I think- that you guys are doing, you know. There's, there's a process to it, you know, go further with that. If you want to keep playing in the dirt, go for it. Become a soil scientist. Well, I think uh, just to kind of add on to your, your aspect of like, I can't do 50 miles and I don't think you have to. I think it's just what is the distance that's going to be meaningful for you. And, um, we all have those, those pieces of, to being able, being able to be inspiring to people around us, you know? So this is not me like saying you should start running, no. but this is me saying <laughs> there's it's any way to make impact, telling me right? to get out there and run. Um, and, and it was like, it was really emotionally, you know, there is the last part, probably the last like 15 miles. I just started getting so much emotion. I was like crying. And you know, it's like also really awkward to be doing something like this and having a film crew with you, right. which I was, I've never had that experience before. So I didn't really know, like, I don't want to cry on camera. And they're like, <laughs> you're crying. Like they want to get that emotion. <laughs> it was, that was like a really interesting Roll, experience. Roll, she's crying um, yeah. But like, actually one of the most meaningful parts of that film, which is not caught on, uh, or that run, I should say, which is not caught on film was within like, I, you know, I started at five in the morning when it was dark. Right. And as the sun was rising up, um, I was running up this hill and there was a herd of deer that came running with me. Um, and it's really interesting because deer are very culturally significant on both my mom's side and my dad's side. Mm-hmm. Um, so like Yaki are really well known for their muscle dancers, the deer dancers mm-hmm. that are part of our Easter ceremonies. And in my mom's tribe, deer, they leave their footprints, leave our, our medicine. And so to have both of the deer come out and run with me for several minutes that are so symbolic on both sides of my tribe, it was just kind of like my ancestors being there with me, yeah. right? And reminding oh, yeah. me like, this is why yeah, you're doing awesome. this and that we're here for you. And it just like made me start crying. <laughs> That's awesome. And so there are a lot of things like that. And I'll just say that the 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 part of like each mile having a counting, it was like each mile, I'm like, okay, I'm doing this mile. Who's the person I'm honoring? Right. Right. This is why I'm honoring them. I'm thinking about that. And actually, um, Again, it's not really shown in the film, but the day of the run, for whatever reason, like where I was supposed to finish and ended up being half a mile short. 
And like the last mile was dedicated to future scholars. And so I was like, oh, I'm so tired. I've been running for like 11 hours. Yeah. I just want to stop. But like it's dedicated to the future. And like I can't leave them hanging. Right. So then yeah. it was like we had to run up the road and all my friends ran up with me. And it was just really beautiful. So while we're talking about running and a lot of your passions and everything, and I know you, just a little while ago you talked about, you know, um, being in the dirt and Roberta talked about, you know, um, playing in the dirt and everything. Um, Roberta let me know that you're also an artist who creates her own um, pigments and stuff with, with um, natural elements. Yeah, I started, um, I have some some colleagues, some other soil scientists who started making soil pigments. And I was like, that's so cool. She mm -hmm. actually makes little kits that you can buy um, called the art of soil. And so I started, I was like, well, I'm in the Southwest. Like we have some of the most amazing soils out there, you know? And I think it was also kind of just interesting to me that native people have always been making soil pigment or earth pigments. Right. right. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, our, our ecosystems are embodied in every part of our identity and culture and being in language. And so I was, it was interesting to like, see that, to see like earth pigments and, and soil art so celebrated by like white scientists, but like with native communities, it's always been like, oh, that's their cultural artifacts. You know, it's right. like something of the past, but we still do it today. Mm -hmm. And so I guess I kind of wanted to, to start making them as well to to both kind of highlight that hypocrisy of it, that like Native people have always been doing this and like they're the experts. Right. We are the experts as Native people. Um, and like there's a lot of things that the soil science world is missing out by dismissing our expertise. And so that's kind of how it started. But it's also just a way for me to deepen my soil science knowledge um, and kind of interrelate these two things. And so going out and collecting soils, I like to identify the names. Um, and then going through the process of actually making pigments is really interesting and beautiful and um, very natural. You know, I use honey, I use clove oil to stop the fun fungi from spreading on it. And then it just takes some work, but I like to make watercolors with them. Um, I'm going to be working. I want to actually do some work in pottery, which I've never done before. Um, but right now I'm just working focused on watercolors and learning different techniques to make watercolors because I use honey, but people use like tempura mm -hmm. or like use egg paste to make pigments. Um, so I think that's just really cool uh, way to kind of start bringing in and kind of integrating both my soil science knowledge with artistic practices. Um, that is a, just a kind of different creative outlet. Awesome. Yeah, that was really that was really interesting to me when I was like, wait, you use soil? <laughs> you make paints with soil and I'm like, well, I mean, we make paints with plants. So I'm like, we, we, we gain plants, you know, we get all our ink and stuff from natural elements. So I was like, well, like, I guess it's not so surprising, but right. it, it was surprising. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm going to be doing a workshop actually with um, a professor or a teacher at the Santa Fe Indian school. Um, and he does like the earth and natural sciences courses. And so I just met with him yesterday. We're going to do an earth pigment workshop and, and partner with one of the art teachers who's also wanted to learn more about them. But like, you know, talking about go out with the students and collect soils and then bring them back to the classroom and go through the process of processing and, and like sieving the soil because you want the really fine sediment um, or fine clays to make right. those pigments. And so it's going to be cool. It sounds awesome. I'll share some photos when it happens. Yeah, yeah please definitely, do. definitely. That's yeah, it's it's um, 
through your photos and everything that you know we we, we kind of take these little trips with you you know we saw that you were the um the the banner for the rei website for for a bit i don't know if that's still current so just all the yeah crazy <laughs> yeah just all the different uh, things that you're into you know like i said you know robert and i've been since the ifkin gathering you know we've been getting to know um you know the people that we hosted um more on a personal level you know we're texting one another now and so we're friends on facebook you know since the <laughs> gathering um i've added you on face on facebook and so you know like i said it's just we're getting to know you know the the our, our relatives that left us you know back to their homelands and and are sharing with their homelands you know the stuff that you know hopefully we we provided here the knowledge and and the love and everything and so um roberta did you have anything else for for lydia i know we're, we're winding down here on time we're getting close to our i think i didn't answer one of your questions okay. sorry um, so it was the one about what I would share about listeners with the, our Hopi and Taylor youth and young girls about like being a scientist, right? Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. So that's that's where I'm going next. But just to make sure I answer that question of like what would I like to share or what advice? Yeah. I think it's um, there's a lot of expertise already in your community, so definitely take advantage of that while you are home, um, because and like because the expertise that you have at home also isn't going to be around forever, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, there is a lot of work learning that you can do from books, but the, the kind of knowledge you get from people back home, um, you know, is only as precious as they're like, is only available while they're around. And so really valuing that. And that's something I wish I would have done when I was younger, because now I, I look back and I am sad that I missed out on some of those opportunities. Um, but the other part, too, is, is just making sure that you have a network of people for support, um, which I think is like already pretty strong and hopey. Um, but that also means like when you go to college and, and you find mentors is like have multiple people who can give you advice in many different ways and kind of taking that advice and then and, and find, figuring out what works best for you um, because people can only give advice from like their lived experiences. Um, and then particularly with like with girls and in science and I, I think for every youth, it's just like take advantage of the opportunities that are available. You know, and that sometimes means like getting to go, even though you're scared, going and living somewhere really different um, and meeting people in a variety of places and just being really open to those experiences because you really never know how they're going to help you find your passion and or how those relationships that you build early on are going to come back into your life. Um, it's like with me, you know, going and doing this at Santa Fe Indian School, it's because of people I knew in high school, you know, who are there now. And so, um, yeah, just really being open and taking advantage and and just learning um and then bringing that back home awesome, awesome. Thank, thank you for that that that's that's gold <laughs> <laughs> yes thank you so and much we, we want to inspire you to to go out and and you know for those that aspire to obtain a phd you know that's going to be something that i hope you know they, they they write down in their notebook you know they got a a, a little quote book of um dr jenny's quotes <laughs> Oh, and I would say too, the other part is it's scary, but like know that there's a lot of us in these spaces mm-hmm. that are going to be there to support you and fight for you. Um, and that like, because someone supported and fought for us and like we, we have that being like a native academic, we recognize as a very strong responsibility to our nations. Mm-hmm. And so like, for me, it was an honor to be able to be in Hopi, to experience the community and understand so that. Oh, in the future, when I have students who are from Hopi, I have a context of 
the nations that they're coming from, the, you know, what are the values, what are the ecosystems, what are the concerns? Like that is something that's really important to me to, to be a better mentor in the future. And so thank you all for, again, your hospitality of extending this opportunity to be here on the podcast, but also in visiting your homelands. Thanks for, uh, oh, absolutely. Thank you so much for being with us. And thank you for, for the message that you've shared with our youth. Um, and uh, thank you all for joining us at the Hopi Farm Talk podcast, a project of the Not One E Coalition, which is also a project of the Hopi Foundation. So thank you for joining us. This is JD signing off with Berta. and Dr. <laughs> Jenning.